There's more mischief, mayhem, and nefarious goings-on in the city of brotherly love than Billy Penn could have ever imagined. We've got it all here on the Twisted Billy Podcast. True crime, haunted history, the coolest and creepiest places to visit. Welcome, Welcome to, to Twisted Billy. Hey, Twisters, what up? Welcome back to the Twisted Philly Podcast, where we are dishing up a whole lot of brotherly love and sisterly affection. Last week's episode, the day I drove past a crime scene, was pretty tough. It was definitely a learning experience for me, hosting a topic about which I had a connection, albeit a pretty distant or peripheral connection. Over the past few days, I've received messages from people who also remember Amy Willard's story, either because they live in the area or they went to school with Amy. One friend shared a memory about being told to drive with the interior dome light on if you're pulled over by a police officer and drive until you arrive at a populated, well-lit spot. See, 20 years later, Amy's story still sticks with all of us, it's had such an impact on Philly and the suburban Philadelphia community. So thank you for the messages and comments about the episode and for your support as I shared something that was a little more serious than what you're used to from me. So what are we up to this week? Well, to start, we are up with a what up. The what up this week goes out to the host of the Apex and Abyss podcast. She is incredibly gracious and has shared so much advice with me. And that's the really cool thing that I've learned so far as I interact with fellow podcasters. There's no territoriality here. People are willing to offer advice and suggestions. She's been so helpful in giving me tips on how to expand the footprint for this podcast. So what up, Apex and Abyss? And while we're at it, Twisters, show her some Twisted Philly love. The Apex and Abyss podcast is a really great true crime podcast. So definitely jump on iTunes, check it out, and subscribe. The other thing that we are up to this week in Twisted Philly is some grave digging. You know, Jamie, it's a moot question as to whether our suppliers uh, merely disturb death or actually cause it. There's a long history of grave digging, grave robbing, body snatching, and resurrectionists. Now, resurrectionists is the formal name that grave robbers gave themselves back during Victorian times. To me, it sounds like something out of a cowboy western, like regulators. And try saying resurrectionists three times fast it is next to impossible. When we talk about history here in Twisted Philly, we sometimes revisit places that we've already been to. So today, we're going to revisit some of what we talked about in episode two, Mutter Butter. Now, you don't have to have listened to that episode to be able to follow along today, but there are definitely connections. The very first formal anatomy course in the U.S. was taught right here in Philadelphia at the University of Pennsylvania in 1745. So that same amazing history we have here in Philly that contributed to the birth of medicine, especially surgery in the United States, also gave birth to grave robbers. In the 1700s, the only legal way medical colleagues could get their hands on dead bodies for dissection and for teaching was through donated, executed criminals. That's right, you just got hanged for stealing a loaf of bread, and now you will be denied a final resting place. Instead, you will be flayed open on an operating table in front of a few hundred eager young men. The idea of being dissected was so appalling to people in the Victorian era that some states, like Massachusetts for instance, added dissection as an extra punishment for anyone who was killed in a duel. 
So as if it isn't bad enough that you've just been killed, you're the guy that got slain, you have the option of either being buried in a public grave or being given up for dissection. The only industry that needed dead bodies was that of medical colleges. And where were the first medical colleges in the United States? They were right here in Twisted Philly. So it wasn't surprising to me when I learned about some pretty twisted tales of gray robbing in Philadelphia in the 19th century. What was surprising was that it took so long for anyone to freak out about it, especially when you consider that New York City already had its fair share of riots because the family members of the recently departed lost their shit over their relatives being dug up and sold for medical education. We know there was a boom in the number of young men coming to Philadelphia in the 1800s to become physicians, and of those, there were so many who specifically wanted to learn anatomy and surgery. There was an agreement in most states that unclaimed bodies, and unclaimed bodies referred to those who died without family or without relations. Usually these were people from asylums or poor houses. These unclaimed bodies could be turned over to physicians for medical dissection. And as the number of students grew, the need for cadavers grew right with them. The ratio of cadavers to students was two to one, or students to cadavers. I think that's right. So that means that two bright young men needed one old creepy cadaver for every class. And there weren't enough executions or unclaimed bodies to keep up with the student population. So the rise of the resurrectionist was born. And resurrectionist was the name these grave robbers gave themselves, so that they sounded as if they had an actual profession and weren't merely hanging out in cemeteries digging up the graves of the recently deceased because the longer someone had been underground, the bigger risk of a doctor declining the merchandise. Fresher was better, just like produce. Oh my God, that was horrible. Cemeteries, like the people they eventually held, were broken out into classes. Wealthy, professional people, those with society connections, they could typically afford to be buried in a family crypt above ground or in some cases beneath the actual place of worship. But that was very few and far between. Most people were buried in church graveyards. And these burial places were also segregated by race, even after the Civil War and the dissolution of slavery. In the mid-1800s in Philadelphia, there were only two African-American cemeteries. One was Olive Cemetery in West Philadelphia, and the other was Lebanon Cemetery, which was in what at the time was considered the southernmost part of the city, although today that area would be 19th Street and Snyder Avenue. Lebanon Cemetery even had a special area dedicated to African-American Civil War veterans. Both of these cemeteries were incorporated in 1849, and unfortunately, it was these cemeteries that resurrectionists plundered most often when they were on the hunt for bodies to sell to science. And of the two of them, Lebanon seemed to get hit the most. In 1882, the Philadelphia Press, which was the premier newspaper in the city at the time, shocked the city with a headline reading, Graveyard Ghouls Arrested with a Cargo of Corpses the ghastly work done for Jefferson Medical College. Growing up in Philadelphia, we had two papers. We had the Bulletin and we had the Inquirer. My house was a Bulletin household until the Bulletin went under, and then we jumped on the Inquirer bandwagon. And it's Inquirer with an I-N, not an Enquirer with an E-N, like the National Enquirer. But in 1882, the Philly paper may as well have been called the National Enquirer because journalistic integrity wasn't a priority. Selling that paper was elaborate, freakish headlines screamed Lebanon Cemetery was almost empty and thousands of bodies were taken for dissection. Both Olive Cemetery and Lebanon Cemetery were overflowing. They were the only two locations that allowed African-American burials within the city limits, and it was hard for people to afford or travel to the more rural cemeteries outside the city. 
How did the Philadelphia press know about the body snatching? Well, the city editor, a man named Louis Megergee, fashioned himself somewhat of an investigative journalist, and he enlisted the help of some friends to hide with him in waiting at Lebanon Cemetery on the night of December 4th in 1882. Earlier in the year, he had been working on a story about the prestigious Jefferson Medical College. During his research, it seemed odd to him that Jefferson never seemed to be at a loss for cadavers, and the majority of these bodies were African-American. The city editor spent many late nights in hiding outside of the college, and he witnessed for himself the delivery of corpses at odd hours in the middle of the night. But then the school term ended, and he was unable to alert authorities about what he believed was happening. Deliveries in the rear of stolen bodies from Lebanon Cemetery. African-American bodies who would then be dissected by white students. Because of the term ending, it would be a number of months before the city editor, Louis Megergee, could gather his colleagues in an effort to catch the men that he believed were the resurrectionists. And at that time, police couldn't give a shit about bodies being sold to Jefferson Medical College, especially if they were African-American bodies. Now, granted, the Civil War had ended and slavery was abolished, but we were just a few years post-slavery, and the climate of our culture and our country, as we all know, would take decades, if not a century, for people to change. Plus, if he would have gone to the police, he wouldn't have had as big a story as he did if he was the one to catch the grave robbers red-handed. And that's exactly what happened. On December 4, 1882, the city editor, Louis Megergee, and his colleagues surprised a man named Frank McNamee, who was traveling with two other men, as they attempted to leave the cemetery in a wagon. The editor and the other men from the paper looked in the back of the wagon, and there were six bodies, four men and two women, and they were naked, which meant that McNamee and his gang not only stole these bodies, they robbed them of any belongings that had been buried with them. There were two men caught with McNamee. One was a gentleman named Henry Dutch Pillet, and he was described as a one-eyed grave robber. Can you imagine a one-eyed grave robber? He should have been a pirate. You cannot make this shit up. Twisted Philly history is stranger than fiction. The other man at the time with him was a gentleman named Levi Chu, and he was the groundskeeper at Lebanon Cemetery. He also happened to be the brother of the cemetery superintendent, Mr. Robert Chu. Whether or not the details in the stories in the Philadelphia Press were 100% accurate, I can't exactly say. The articles were over 130 years old. What we do know is that medical universities struggled to legally obtain cadavers for anatomy lectures, and members of the Philadelphia Press spent months from March through December of 1882 following men who they believed were grave robbers. And these same journalists made a citizen's arrest on the night of December 4th. As a result of this, more stories came out about neglect at Lebanon Cemetery. There was a mass grave at the rear of the cemetery that no one even realized existed. And with the exception of a few row houses across the street from the church, which sat at the front of the cemetery, everything surrounding Lebanon Cemetery, especially in the rear, was farmland, making it really easy to hide a mass grave. And because a member of Frank McNamee's gang was related to the cemetery superintendent, it was so easy for them to get their hands on bodies and graves that had been plundered for years. The day after the resurrectionists were caught, they were taken to central booking. Okay, in the 1800s, it wasn't called central booking. I just like saying that because it makes me sound like Olivia Benson. They were actually taken to central station and a hearing was held the next day for Frank McNamee, who was the leader, as well as the rest of his crew. While this hearing was going on, African-American Philadelphians showed up at the city morgue. They saw the articles in the Philadelphia press and they were desperate to determine if any of their loved ones were among the corpses that were discovered in McNamee's wagon. And, you know, think about this. African-Americans in the 1800s were faced with constant racism and discrimination, 
I remember when I talked about young men getting medical degrees in the Victorian era in episode two, there were a few conditions they had to meet. They had to be male, they had to be 24 years of age, and they had to be white. So what the city was saying is black men weren't good enough to attend Philadelphia universities as students, but they were good enough to cut apart for the educational benefit of white men. That's a huge part of our history. It's a part of the history in Philadelphia, and it's a huge part of history of medicine in America. Not all grave robbers were white men either. Many of them were black men who were forced to desecrate the graves of their fellow African Americans as a means to make a living. Now, there was some skill in how these men went about digging up graves. A highly skilled resurrectionist had trade secrets, and there was a gentleman named Rufus Cantrell who was a renowned grave robber from Indianapolis, and he actually spent a few years in Philadelphia robbing graves here. He stood on trial in 1903 for his crimes while giving testimony against the doctor who paid for his services. Rufus and his ghouls, and that's what he referred to his gang as, the ghouls, they only needed to dig a hole at the head of the grave. And what they did was they dug down a square-shaped hole until they reached the lid of the coffin. Then they broke through the end of the coffin and somehow managed to get a noose around the neck of the man contained inside and hoist the corpse up and out through this long square hole. That small hole was much easier to fill back in and leave the remaining plot undisturbed versus digging up an entire grave site. Doing this, they didn't draw any attention to themselves or draw attention from the deceased loved ones. But unfortunately, Frank McNamee and his idiot crew in Philadelphia did nothing but draw attention to themselves. While he was questioned, Frank McNamee ran a normal delivery service during daylight hours, although I was not able to ascertain exactly what sort of normal items he might have delivered when the sun was up. But he told police he took over the grave robbing business a few years before this from his brother, after his brother moved to Maryland. So talk about... Like keeping it in the family, here's hoping that the Philly authorities alerted Merlin they had a grave robber in their midst. McNamee also turned over two sets of keys to the police. These were keys to Jefferson Medical College, and one in particular was a key to the dissection room. But he wouldn't tell police who hired him for these nefarious services or where he obtained the keys. But his silence did not last forever. Just about a week after their arrest, McNamee, the Chew brothers, and one-eyed Pillet were indicted on six charges by a Philadelphia grand jury, and that's when McNamee decided to start talking. He gave up the name of the man who hired him, the man who gave him the keys to Jefferson Medical College, and the man who paid him and his crew $8 for every corpse. And that man was Dr. William S. Forbes. Forbes was a young man in his 20s when he graduated with a medical degree from Jefferson Medical College in 1852. He then went on to be a surgeon in the Civil War, and after the war, he returned to Philadelphia, where he became a professor of anatomy at his alma mater in 1879. The crazy thing, though, about McNamee giving up Forbes as his accomplice is that he is the man who authored the Pennsylvania Anatomy Act in 1867. So what's the Anatomy Act? At a meeting in February of 1867 at the College of Physicians of Philadelphia, and remember, that is not an actual college, but the oldest medical society in the country, Please don't be dumb like me and think it's an actual school. Dr. Forbes raised concern about the ability of medical schools to secure corpses for dissection and anatomy education, even though the city population was growing and, in his opinion, should have had enough unclaimed dead to make it easy to provide corpses for education. Now, these are his own words from that meeting. In view of the fact our city contains now three-quarters of a million inhabitants, I think it is idle to suppose there is not an ample number of unclaimed dead bodies in this city and commonwealth to satisfy the demands of all who may come for the purpose of cultivating a knowledge of anatomy, both healthy and morbid. 
Okay, I'm going to stop for a second because I'm not sure when he says both healthy and morbid if he's talking about the types of anatomy or the reasons that these people want to come to our city to cultivate their knowledge. I'm hoping it's the former and not the latter. He went on to say, I believe it consists entirely in the fact that as there is no law of the Commonwealth by which our physicians can claim these dead bodies to be used for medical investigation, the authorities in whose hands they are lodged do not feel themselves at liberty to give them up for any purpose. So basically what he's saying here is, yo, there are enough people in the city of Philly right now that there should be more than enough unclaimed dead bodies to be turned over to colleges. The problem, though, is the police, who are typically the ones who have their hands on these dead bodies, don't feel comfortable turning the bodies over. Dr. Forbes was also worried about the possibilities of grave robbers capitalizing on this situation, as we were seeing in Philadelphia. And he was even more concerned about the possibility of some seriously nefarious people taking it upon themselves to commit murder to create corpses and cadavers. Dr. Forbes submitted a request for formal legislation to address this issue, and it was called the Anatomy Act for the promotion of medical science and to prevent the traffic in human bodies. Basically, what the act did was requested that physicians or surgeons be given the authority to take custody of any unclaimed deceased persons from prisons, from almshouses, or asylums within their county, and these people would have otherwise been buried at the public's expense. While the legislation passed in the House of Representatives, it did not pass in the Senate. So Dr. Forbes went back to the drawing room, he wordsmithed the act, he softened the language a little bit, he added some extra conditions, and gave it a fancier title. The other thing he did was restrict the act to Philadelphia and Allegheny County versus the entire Commonwealth. Going forward, the act was called for the promotion of medical science and to prevent the traffic in human bodies in the city of Philadelphia and the county of Allegheny. One of the other conditions in this version of the act was that any persons who would have been intended for public burial and declared they did not wish to be turned over for medical study or dissection could not be taken by physicians or surgeons. They had to be put into public burial grounds. The Anatomy Act was passed in the spring of 1867, and it was sometimes referred to as the Ghastly Act because talking about the procurement of dead bodies is a ghastly topic. Frank McNamee claims this is the man who was in cahoots with him to steal corpses from local cemeteries. The doctor who worked so hard with the other members of the College of Physicians of Philadelphia to create a law protecting Philadelphia's deceased persons and minimizing the opportunities for grave robbers. This guy? There's no way. There's no way it was this guy. Well, guess what? It was absolutely this guy. Apparently, it was Dr. Forbes himself who paid McNamee for the bodies and who gave him the keys to Jefferson Medical College, including a key to the dissecting room, making it easier for McNamee to get in and out of the school. For months, the Philadelphia Press covered the trials and the accusations against Dr. Forbes, and these stories got picked up by other papers in other states, including the New York Times. Yes, the freaking New York Times in 1882 and 1883 was running stories about body snatching in Philadelphia. Forbes wasn't the only Philadelphia surgeon accused of resurrectionism. There was a surgeon in the 1700s by the name of Philip Singh Physic, and he was a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania. After he left Philadelphia, he studied in Edinburgh and then returned to America to practice surgery in Philadelphia. Dr. Physic was considered the father of American surgery. He's actually the grandfather of Emlyn Physic, of the very famous Emlyn Physic estate in Cape May, New Jersey. And there it is, folks, a way to tie Twisted Philly to Cape May. 
But I digress. I mentioned Dr. Physic to point out the city's long history of grave robbing as a means to educate early Philadelphia surgeons. Dr. Physic was accused of these same crimes in the late 1700s, and here we are 100 years later in the late 1800s during Dr. Forbes' tenure. The same twisted shit is still happening, except this time it's not being buried in the sand. Pardon the pun, uh, it was not intentional, I promise. Although Dr. Forbes was accused in December of 1882, he didn't actually stand trial until March of 83. That's due in large part to the unbelievable support from the medical community and well-positioned Philadelphia Society members. As you would probably imagine, when he did stand trial, he denied every one of the eight indictments. He said he was only guilty of receiving unclaimed corpses, as was his right as a surgeon based on the Anatomy Act. When he was asked if he had ever wondered if these corpses were being obtained via legal channels, he said no, he never thought about it. He also said he never thought about why so many of the bodies were African-Americans, and apparently neither did the rest of the doctors or the students at Jefferson Medical College. And as you might also expect, Dr. Forbes was acquitted on all charges because, you know, he was white and a doctor. Then later that year, Pennsylvania legislature passed a new anatomy act that made it easier for physicians to obtain corpses by more legal methods. And this was in large part because of what happened at Lebanon Cemetery. By 1900, the cemetery closed, but that wasn't necessarily because of the grave robbing. That was more due to city expansion. So many of the city cemeteries were closing in the 1900s because their proximity to densely populated areas were huge catalysts for disease. And then 50 or so years later, the voluntary donor program took off, not only for organ donations, but donating your remains for medical science. You might be wondering what happened to Dr. Forbes' remains when he died in 1905. Well, that son of a bitch was cremated. Can you blame him? After all the bodies he paid to have dug up and stolen from medical research, if he wasn't cremated, I am damn sure his corpse would have been dug up pretty soon after it got dumped in the ground. Even with this mark in his reputation, Dr. Forbes continued successfully practicing medicine throughout the rest of his career. There's actually a portrait of him in the Eakin Gallery at Jefferson Hospital, and the portrait was painted by a famous Philadelphia realist artist, Thomas Eakins, who did quite a lot of his work in the 1800s and early 1900s at Jefferson Medical College, painting visceral, gruesome scenes of surgery in the lecture halls and the surgical theaters. And that, my friends, is the end of our body-snatching tale. Who knew, right? Oh, the dark, sordid tales that ooze out of the streets of Twisted Philly never cease to shock me. I hope they shock you too. And, you know, while this story had its creepy, haunted history factor, it also casts a very harsh light on the history of our city, on the treatment of African-American citizens 130 years ago, and on medicine in general in this country. You know, as I was researching this story, I found a number of other stories similar to this one from other states. Certainly, the story of Pennsylvania and Philadelphia's body snatchers was one of the biggest carried in the New York Times, but these crimes were not unique to Philadelphia. This was really how medicine was able to educate young men who wanted to become surgeons. It was through the practice of grave robbing, and primarily the graves that were robbed were those of African Americans. I think it's important that we take time to acknowledge that, and I think the medical community should probably do more to acknowledge that, but that's probably a story for another day. I want to thank you for listening. I want to thank all of you again for the tweets and the comments on Facebook. If you want to follow me, you can find me on Twitter at twisted underscore Philly. And you can find me on Facebook at Twisted Philly Podcast. If you have the opportunity, I would love it if you could go onto iTunes, subscribe, drop me a review or a rating. We're also on Podbean. We're on Stitcher. We're on Player FM. 
Again, that's thanks in large part to the apex and the abyss. That's all I've got for today, folks. Ciao for now, twisters.